like to ask you a couple of questions to get us thinking this morning, get started. First question is this, why do you go to a movie theater? I'm not asking that question in judgment, I'm just asking the question, why do people go to movie theaters? And you might say, well, I, I love the popcorn, or I want some of that candy. But ultimately, a person goes to a movie theater because they want to watch a movie, right? That's why you go to a movie theater. And why do we get reminded like 15 times before the movie starts, depending on when you get there, to turn off your cell phone before that movie starts? Why? Well, that bright light is certainly distracting, and maybe a ringtone, somebody's loud ringtone goes off at the worst time. I want to have that happening. What if a person starts having a conversation on the phone during the movie? Full-on conversation. And they have their phone turned up real high because, you know, they can't hear the person because that movie's too loud, right? So they got to turn the volume way up. It's almost like it's on speakerphone. And they're just having a good old conversation, just shooting the breeze right there. You know what might, we might think in that moment? Who does this person think they are? They say, well, would you like us to pause the movie for you? Uh, we can wait, really. No, it's okay, right? We might have that kind of a feeling towards that situation. But who does this person think they are? Or how about this? Why do we go to the symphony? Why would, besides to impress our date, why would we go to the symphony? Well, the answer should be to hear the orchestra play. We want to hear the music. Uh, imagine sitting there, listening, enjoying the music. Everyone's all dressed up nice and everything, and then the orchestra readies to play Beethoven's fifth. Symphony number five. And it's right there on the, on the order there so people can see in the program that's what's coming next. They see all the, they hear the quiet. And this guy right in front of you goes, Oh, I know this one! Bum, 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 bum! Bum, 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 bum! He gets his cell phone out and turns the light on and starts waving it in the air. <laughs> what is this guy doing? This is not a rock concert, is it? Who does this guy think he is? Question. Why do we go to church? Why do we go to church? We should say this, to worship the Lord. We come to church to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord alone is worthy of our worship and praise. Remember, we are sinners. We were in bondage to sin, dead in our trespasses. And God, being merciful, being gracious, showed his love for us by sending Christ to die our death, to take our sin, to take on himself our guilt, our shame, dying in our place. God has graciously opened our eyes to see these truths, brought us to repentance, saved us from an eternity in hell, given us Christ's perfect record. We have been given Christ's righteousness, given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of God's promises to complete our sanctification, to give us eternal life, perfect fellowship with him that we'll be able to enjoy forever. God did that. God is doing that. And even the future stuff, God says it's as good as done. That's God's doing. So we come to church to worship the Lord, to worship him. And part of that worship according to this passage of Scripture, is to build up others. 
we worship Jesus, and we also worship Jesus by encouraging others to worship Jesus. Uh, That's why, unlike at the symphony, we ask everybody to sing along here. We want everybody to sing along with these songs of worship together. In Ephesians 5, we're commanded to address one another. To address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And in Colossians 3, it says, Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. One of the ways it says, By singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So even in our singing, our singing serves that dual purpose to worship, to ascribe to God his worth, and to build others up in their walk and in their worship of Christ. The word uh, in the Greek for exhortation, the word exhortation literally means to build up a house. To build up a house. Church, what are we? We are the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being our cornerstone. So if I come into the church building and, oh, I hear my song, I love this song, and I'm all excited, I know a sweet harmony for that chorus. Oh, I'm going to sing that harmony so loud. The people sitting in front of me, the Smiths, when they hear me hit that high note, they're going to be amazed. They're going to turn around in shock and awe. Their their jaws are going to drop can you believe he's that good? And the word's going to spread around the church and, and, and Paul Scobie's going to be asking me, begging me to sing up on the platform next Sunday. You know, if I have that kind of a spirit, if I come to church with that kind of attitude, I'm starting to think that church is about me. If I love the praise I receive for my singing, the praise I receive maybe for my teaching or my new fancy clothes, these are not new clothes by the way, but my new fancy clothes or, or even my excellent post-service conversation skills. Whatever it might be, when I start making church all about me, then I would be right to ask myself, who do I think I am? Who do I think I am? There's Jesus, who we ought to worship, who I can't reach high enough to get to where he is, right? And then there's me. And by God's grace, what has he done with me? By God's grace, this has happened. And it's not because of my righteousness, but because of Christ's. The reason I have been lifted up from my lowest state is Jesus. Jesus. So why do we come to church? to worship Jesus, and to build up others to do the same. To build up this house, the household of God. Now in this passage today, in this passage today, Paul is confronting three issues uh, that were not building up the church, but were instead tearing the church down. It's important for us to realize right off the bat here that there is no neutral. You're building or were tearing. And these three things were tearing the church down. Number one, there was a worship issue. Who do we come to worship? Number two is a submission issue. Who did God give for leadership 
And the third is a pride issue. Who do I think I am? Who do you think you are? A worship issue, a submission issue, and a pride issue. So first, let's look first at this issue of worship. Who did we come to worship? Verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Uh, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, singular, or an interpretation. And please understand, this sentence isn't instruction for how the church was to conduct worship. It was an explanation of how they were doing worship, how they were coming into worship. Paul is simply describing the scene as it was. And everyone comes into the room and says, I have a song that I'd like to sing. The Lord has laid a song upon my heart that I must share today. I have a lesson to share. Oh, I feel a tongue coming on. And imagine if every single person here this morning, and this is a less, this is less than a third of our church's size. So imagine, take this, times four. And every single person comes and I have a song. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read scripture. I'm gonna preach. I have a tongue. Every single person comes in and has that ready to go. What will result from that? That'd be chaos, wouldn't it? It'd be chaos. And everyone is expecting to be given the floor. Or when they don't get it though, because everyone else wants that attention as well, they all just start doing their thing. Since we can't let any one person go because too many people want to, and people can't be told no, then everybody just starts competing for attention. So imagine each one of you deciding that what you have and what you've brought is what everybody else needs to hear. And even though they're doing something right now and speaking right now, you're just going to try to go over top of them. And we're going to fight and compete with each other for attention so that we are the ones who are heard. It was chaos. Especially when people were mimicking that pagan practice that was popular in Corinth of indistinct, ecstatic utterances, the languages of the gods, that Paul here refers to as a tongue. A tongue. Remember, uh, the improper a tongue has been signified by the singular use of that word in chapter 14. And the biblical tongues signified by the plural form. That's how Paul distinguished them in the first half of chapter 14. So it makes sense that he would continue to do so in the latter half of chapter 14. Another helpful side note for us to be thinking about here, uh, perhaps to see what's going on in the church at this time. Remember, Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half. Uh, Paul planted the church and led the church for that time. And then not long after, Apollos came. And then he preached and he taught. He led the church But by the time Paul writes this letter, if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, chapter 2, Apollos has gone to another place of ministry. When Paul writes of Apollos' ministry, he writes of it in the past tense. So Apollos is no longer there. And then it's not until a year later, about a year later, when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, the 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the church, uh, where he says in chapter 8, he is now ready to send to them Titus. For the purpose of being uh, their, their preacher, the one who would lead the church. So perhaps a little over two years, their church was without any leadership, any leadership. And in that lack of leadership, 
And, and we can understand maybe too, if everybody's acting that way, not a ton of people are probably going to be jumping into that idea of leading in that situation. They're going to be a little fearful of that. But they've gone without leaders. And in that, though people's desires were coming to the surface, chaos ensued, self-interested actions resulted in chaos. And we say this, praise God for faithful leaders who guide a church through times without preaching elders. Amen? It's very significant for the health and life of a church. In response to the chaos, though, that was tearing the church down, Paul writes this at the end of verse 26, let all things be done for building up. Let all things be done for building up. The implication being this, if I come to church to inflate myself, to feel better about myself, to attract admirers, and let's call that what it really is, to attract worshipers, then I won't be building up the church. I'll be tearing it down. If I come to be worshipped, I won't help others worship. Now, they might worship somebody, but it won't be Jesus. And that wouldn't be for their good, would it? Now, in the next few verses, Paul gives instruction these instructions, if they're going to have multiple speakers, if, if people are going to come into the church and, and multiple people are going to have a message, then these instructions are designed to eliminate the chaos, to eliminate what's being done incorrectly. Uh, what I mean by that is this, if the church goers at Corinth were speaking in false, ecstatic, unbiblical tongues, or if they weren't truly proclaiming the word of God through prophecy, if what they were saying was not the word of the Lord then what Paul has set up for them here is going to weed that out. It's going to eliminate the possibility. So let's read these guidelines. Verse 27. First with tongues. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, as in for the whole service. No more than two or three for the whole service. And each in turn... At a time. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So imagine, let's just say six or seven people trying to get a spot in the service. They come into the building, it's Sunday morning, they're ready to go, they're, they're vying for their chance to get in there. Uh, they want to speak in a tongue. Imagine having the pleasure of being the person to say, okay, uh, you three get to, but you four, you don't get to today. That's a fun job. Okay, but this person has to do this, and, and they're, they're hurting the hearts of these, these adults who feel they're missing their chance to impress. That's all going on. Let's say, okay, you know what? We're going to pick, we're going to pick John. Good old John. We're going to have John. And then, and then we'll say this. Hey, everybody. John has something he'd like to say in a tongue today. So you've all seen John when he starts speaking in those uh, ecstatic utterances. Can anybody interpret what he's doing when he's doing that? Exactly. We don't have any crickets in the building this morning. It's kind of unfortunate. Crickets in a tongue today at church. Do you see what's happening here? It's already over. But even if someone's willing, if somebody says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm willing to take a shot at it. We're all, all going to stop anything, everything else then. When it's time for John to get up there and to speak in a tongue, everything else stops. 
and everybody watches and everybody listens. We're going to watch you go through this whole experience knowing, remember, the idea of being slain in the Spirit versus what we know a fruit of the Spirit being self-control. We're going to require the interpretation and then discern whether that built everyone up or not. We need to decide, was that advantageous for the building up of the body of Christ? So this is the gamut that this has to run through in order, be, in order to be done per Paul's and the Lord's biblical instruction here. Now, guess how long tongues are going to last if that's how you have to do it? And the answer is not very long. And I think this makes it all the more clear that what was happening with tongues in Corinth is not what we see happening in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. It was a different thing. And so with these instructions, it needed to stop. And if people in churches uh, that pushed tongues today, think if many of these churches that, that preach and push tongues today would, would run all of their efforts through the grid of Scripture here. They would look at these passages and run it through Scripture, then I would say it probably wouldn't last very long there either. It probably wouldn't last very long in many of the situations we see today. What about prophecies? Uh, verse 29 through 31. Uh, let two or three prophets speak. So some same things here. Let the others weigh what was said. Let others weigh what was said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Remember now, Paul's eliminating misuses, uh, self-interested, self-worshipful misuses of these gifts. So he says to anyone who wants to preach in the services, he says, okay, you're all going to speak one at a time. So everyone can hear what you said. And we're all going to weigh what you said. Accountability. Accountability. And when we think of weighing, uh, think of scales, okay? We think of scales. So if you think about calibrating a scale, what you have to do if you're going to weigh something, and, and think about like uh, maybe old paintings or, or statues where you see the two sides of the scale and you put something in this side, on this plate, on this plate, and the heavier thing will go lower, right? When you calibrate a scale, what you do on the one side, uh, you need to have a certifiable weight. This weight has proven uh, to be exactly what it says it is. So we know uh, certifiably this is, let's say, 10 pounds. And then we're going to put something else on this side. And if you're calibrating the scale, it should also be 10 pounds. And the scale should do what? If the scale's right, it should come even, right? So if we're going to, though, say, okay, the scale's calibrated, we're going to put this 10-pound weight over here, and then we're going to put what these people say is 10 pounds on this side, we're weighing it against what we know has been certifiably proven to be true. So, church, when we weigh what is being said in the preaching of the service— what is certifiably true that we weigh what was said against? And the answer is God's holy, perfect, 
inerrant word. This is what we weigh everything against. So the church, think now, we are called to worship together. Uh, you are not to be passive right now. In our worship gathering, we worship the Lord in our fellowship. We worship the Lord in our giving. We worship the Lord in our, our singing of these songs and edify one another through that. And we all worship the Lord in our time spent in the preaching of the word. Um, I'm worshiping the Lord by serving you, uh, by giving you God's word. And that's, that is the weight of the responsibility that's put on me right now to make sure that what you're hearing is true and not just what I feel. And your responsibility is to hear what's being said and say, is this biblical? Is this true? And, and not according to how you feel, but according to the truth of God's word. And then for all of us, myself included, every single one of us then, we are to weigh ourselves against the truth of God's word. Does that make sense? So this is an act of worship right now. Uh, we could consider it the climax of worship of our time together because this is where we uh, quiet ourselves and say, God, what do you have to say? Uh, that's what we've been called to do. So these aspiring prophets are being told only one of you at a time. And everyone's going to listen. At that point, some, some of us be like, yeah, I'm not good with public speaking. <laughs> I'm out, <laughs> right? But everyone's going to listen. And they're going to weigh what you've said with Scripture. So hope you're not a false prophet. And, and if two or three of you are on the schedule, and the next speaker has a message from the Lord, you're going to have to wrap it up. If the next person's ready to go, we only have so much time here, you can't just talk the whole time. It's not all uh, your show, right? Wrap it up. We didn't come here just to hear your sweet voice. We came here to hear from God. And so you put all this criteria together. And what do you suspect will happen to the number of aspiring prophets at the church of Corinth? We might expect that the numbers would decrease a tad. And in this situation, that'd probably be a good thing. Uh, Because the goal in our services is not worship of self, but the worship of the Lord. And as Paul wrote in verse 31, our goal is that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And especially with our calibration against the word of God, if I'm saying something to you that's not biblical, you may feel encouraged, but if what I'm saying to you is not true, you are not truly being built up. Does that make sense? You might hear a hammer and nails, but it may not be helping you if it's not true. Now, in order to accomplish this, the church needed to correct this worship issue, which would result in a change from chaos to control, order, peace. Verse 32-33, uh, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, meaning self-control. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So we can say this, worship of self produces chaos. A collective worship of Christ produces peace. Second issue. Second issue. Paul confronts uh, the issue of submission, starting in the middle of verse 33. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, so not, not some, not a regional thing, uh, not just the predominantly Jewish churches, all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent 
in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And here come some qualifiers that help us to understand this better. They are not permitted to speak, uh, but should be in submission. As the law also says, law referring to the Old Testament. And for this, we can go back to before the fall, before the curse. Genesis 2.18 is where we learn that it was not good for man to be alone, so God made him a helper fit for him. Uh, That complementary role of the husband and the wife that was in place in the Garden of Eden before the curse, it just got all messed up when sin entered the world. Okay, the role of a husband to lovingly lead and the role, the role for the wife to submit, uh, that's not bad. It just became bad to our taste because of sin. Because of sin. Same thing with work. Work didn't start to exist after the curse. We just started hating it after the curse. That was the consequence. So men don't lovingly serve through leadership. Women want to take over for their inept and overbearing husbands because of sin. But God did not annul complementarity because of the curse. Our inability to achieve it, just like the rest of the law, it just magnifies our awareness of our sin, helps us to see all the more clear our need for salvation in Christ. And our praise only resounds all the more for what he's done for us. But now being freed from our bondage to sin, God calls us to pursue his design. For this relationship. And this is part of how all that works out in the worship services of the church. And Paul writes, verse 35, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I think this scenario that uh, might be easier for us to consider first is this. Imagine a gentleman is one of the three uh, preaching, prophesying in the church that morning in Corinth. And as everyone weighs what is being said, there's a person who pops up and says, Oh, 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 that is not true. That, that can't be. You explain this to me. Let me ask you this question. And that person just so happens to be that gentleman's wife. That could, that could get a little sticky. That might be a little bit awkward of a ride home, uh, that day. But let's consider this last phrase carefully. Is it shameful for women to speak in church in any way? In any way? Ever? Are they to be, if we were to take this to the extreme, are they to be mute when they hit the door coming into the building and and remain quiet until the moment they leave? I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 seems to indicate that women are able to pray, to prophesy. Women can surely be gifted, spiritually gifted to teach. I would say, you know, everyone who grew up in the church would say certainly that through Sunday school ministries, junior church, Wednesday nights, all that kind of stuff, we would agree that women are able to teach. And women in women's Bible studies and women's gatherings, women have been gifted to teach, and the Lord would use them to teach. The key phrase here to help us understand and take in, in this context, the church service, is the phrase, in submission. In submission. Two other passages that speak to this. Uh, the one I already said, 1 Corinthians eleven five says this. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And her head in that passage is her husband. 
Christ the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. And then in 1 Timothy 2, remember 1 Timothy is a, a letter written by Paul to Timothy, instructing him, teaching him, and us, how to pastor the church, how the church should be ordered. In verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2 in 1 Timothy, it says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all, here's that word again, submissiveness. He says, I do not permit, Paul, I, Paul, do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he says this again from Genesis 2, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So you put these passages together that are consistent with one another. You put these passages together, and what is consistent in all three are the ideas of authority, submission, and specifically during the teaching, preaching ministry of the gathered church, when men and women are gathered together, uh, that men are to preach. So women are, say it this way, women are not to preach and teach in a setting where they would be exercising leadership, exercising authority um, over the men. So the application for today uh, being this. When men and women are gathered together for teaching, for preaching in the church, men should lead and serve at those times. This wouldn't restrict a woman from, from sharing announcements, let's say, or, or singing or, or something like that. Uh, Titus 2, though, gives us a good, positively said way to encourage our women to teach. I think in our nature, we read verses like this and we say, but can I, but can I, but can they, but does this mean where if we didn't have those kinds of things in our hearts, we'd probably just be like, Lord, thank you that I can do this for you. (laughs) We'd have a positive spirit about it. Titus 2 has that. And Paul wrote this in, in Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Uh, They are to teach what is good. It says this, and so in their teaching, what are they teaching? Who are they teaching? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Wonderful. Uh, By the way, there's seven great topics for a women's Bible study right there in that passage. And it's biblical. Number three, the third issue. The third and final issue that Paul addresses in this passage that was tearing down the church instead of building it up is that of pride. And in order to feel the weight, uh, the seriousness of this charge— It'd probably be helpful to envision the one uh, who desires to speak in a tongue, the one who may be an aspiring prophet, also the woman who desires to be the preacher. And and after reading what we've just read this morning, they're probably a little upset. Maybe a lot upset. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, The church at Corinth, Paul writes this letter to the church, and they've been doing things this way for a while. The chaos has become the norm. And this letter comes to the church, and it's read to the congregation. And the guy who loves, just loves, and feels so great about speaking in these unbiblical tongues, the person who can't get enough of hearing themselves prophesying to whoever might happen to stay around long enough to listen, the woman who says, these men are just not cutting it, I can do it better, I'm going to do it better myself. These three people hear this letter from the Apostle Paul, And they're ticked. 
Does that make sense? Imagine these three. They say, you can't put those restrictions on me. Hey, man, you're just stifling the Holy Spirit. If God gave me this gift, why wouldn't he want me to use it, regardless of who the audience is? You can hear their pushback. You can hear their questions. And then to these objections, Paul gives us this, verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Church at Corinth, do you really think that you are the church of all churches and that God only speaks to you in this way? Are you superior to everyone else? Are you the authority? Paul says, he continues, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, remember that question, who do I think I am? If anyone thinks he's a prophet, if anyone thinks he's spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So we'd say this. It would not have been spiritual. It would not have been spiritual for the church the week after receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, to quote-unquote let the same Spirit move, supposedly, and have a massive, chaotic, tongues-speaking event. That's not spiritual. That's carnal. It's not spiritual. It's rebellious. It wouldn't have been godly for a man to go on for two hours when another person or two had prepared a message for the worship service and been scheduled to speak that next Sunday. It wouldn't have mattered how fired up he was, even if he was letting the Spirit lead as he was preaching that message that day. God had spoken. That would not have been a spiritual act. It would not have been godly for him to disregard the instruction from God. It would not have been liberating for a woman to preach the message that next Sunday. Her husband would not have been providing balanced understanding or good leadership in calling on her to preach. He would not have been having and showing more understanding. He would have been abandoning his leadership, abandoning his God design and God given role, which is for her benefit for her benefit that woman would not have been built up she would have been torn down think that is exactly what happened in the garden remember when when satan tempted eve with the fruit with the knowledge of good and evil that god was holding her back from all that she could become where was adam with her He said, no, why don't you go ahead and eat it first? And if you don't keel over dead, I kind of want it too. He abdicated his role of leader. And it was to her harm to tear her down. It isn't humble for a man to ask a woman to preach on Sunday morning. That's not humble. He's saying no to God. That's not humility. That's arrogance. Again, the question that we have to ask from the very beginning, let's ask it again. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? 
And Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet, anyone thinks they're spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And listen, when we're submitted to God, when we trust him, the Bible is really not that hard to understand. On the flip side of that, though, when, when we're thinking carnally, when we're trying to figure out, well, the Bible certainly couldn't mean that. When we're thinking selfishly, boy, the Bible can get really hard to interpret really fast. We might even try to, uh, some interesting things, some, some uh, theological gymnastics to, to make it say what we'd prefer it to say. Or pick and choose uh, where to read if we keep reading it at all. And here's the stark warning to us in verse 38. Something that I uh, must take, we all must take very seriously, but I must take seriously as your pastor, as the one who has the responsibility to proclaim to you the word of the Lord. Paul says this, if anyone does not recognize this, meaning what Paul had just written as God's commands, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. Whoa. Is a person who refuses to come under the authority of God, a person who refuses to come under the authority of God to be considered a follower of Christ? If a person hears and understands God's word on this and says no thanks, Paul's instruction to us and to you is to say no thanks to that person's ministry. If I were to preach to you something other than what the Word of God says, the Bible says you should say no thanks. That's important. That's very significant. God has given us a weighty responsibility to be anchored down to the truth of His authoritative Word. So He says, My brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, to speak words that people understand that will build up the church. Earnestly desire that. And then he says, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. He said this, if it's done right, it's going to pass the test and, and fulfill similar purposes to the occasions of the book of Acts. If it's done wrong, the commands Paul gave would weed that out. And then he says this to conclude the chapter. But all things, all things should be done decently, and that word can mean beautifully, and in order. Order. God is a God of peace. So church, uh, we've come here to worship him. We've come here to worship him, and he is God. He is the Lord. I am that I am. So it's up to him to order our ways. He is God. We are his follower. We say, Lord, what would you have us to do? As Paul said on the road to Damascus. He has created us. He has redeemed us. He has promised to complete the sanctifying work that he started in us. It's promised. And if we really want to be used by him, we need to build one another up. If we're going to be used by him to build one another up, let's rejoice in doing it his way, doing God's work, God's ministry, God's way. God loves us. God sent Christ to die for us. Why would he call us to live and worship in a way that isn't for our best? God can't do anything more for us than he's already done. 
Why would he throw in some sort of sideways, inefficient, not the best way to do things instruction? We have Jesus. And God is perfect in his holiness. And he loves us perfectly. And what he tells us is right. Guess what? It's right. And in our sin, we might go, whoa! But when God says this, and I think that, guess who's right? The Lord. And we humbly, graciously submit to him. So let's, God, let's do God's ministry God's way. And in that, rejoice. Because when we see fruit, knowing that we're doing God's work God's way, guess what that fruit is? It's real. It's genuine. It's sincere. Produced by the Spirit through our labors. That God would use us to do that. What a great privilege. So let's do God's work God's way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, not only that you would take sinners such as ourselves and save us, redeem us, free us from our penalty of sin, but that, Lord, you would then also use us, that you would give us the privilege of representing you here, of being the body of Christ, of being uh, the proclaimers of the gospel to the world around us, to be used to make and mature disciples. God, thank you for your grace upon grace upon grace that you've given to us. And God, I pray that you would uh, work in our hearts, that we would be a humble people, happy and willing to sit under the truth of your word, to do things that are pleasing to you. God, give us a heart to desire to do things that are pleasing to you, but not to fear man. Lord, we thank you that uh, your word promises to us that you're going to finish the work, that Jesus is coming, that we have eternity with you. God, may those things fill our hearts uh, so that we are ready to pour out that love on others and minister to them in a way that truly produces fruit. And God, we thank you for the promise of Jesus to know that if we abide in him, in his words, abide in us, that if we keep your commandments, that our joy will be made full. Lord, thank you. Please use us for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.